Thank you so much, Deacon Riau. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in to be blessed by God's Word as we come together to sing songs of worship, to listen to the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're beginning a new series on 1 Peter, and today it's my joy and my privilege to share with you an introduction and overview, and if possible, to tie it in to the overall message because by God's grace here at ARPC, Edinburgh Presbyterian Church, we have just finished learning the book of Exodus and the precious lessons that are there. So the title of today's message is Making Sense of Nonsense. And um, increasingly around the world, with progress in, um, medical, in medical circles, there is bet better diagnostic skills and tools to discern learning disabilities. And I think, even without that, I've come to the conclusion now, later in life, that I'm spatially challenged. In what sense? There is a small little puzzle in, in my house, right? Just six, seven pieces of wood in a square thing. And it's made into different pieces. I tried to find it. I couldn't find it. But if ever, there's a, if you throw it out of sequence, I can't put it back together again. And ever so often, pre-COVID-19, when uh, we had newcomers' lunch, once a month we'll welcome the newcomers into our home, and there'll be some children, and usually that, that wooden puzzle will just be there, and some kids will pour it out, and within a few seconds, put it back together again. You could give that same puzzle to me, and I won't work it out for the life of me. And every time we drop it somewhere, I still have to ask my wife or my children to help me do it. I do not know how much uh, spring cleaning you have done since COVID-19 began. How many Marie Kondo fans there are or how many Marie Kondo fans there are not. But uh, whether it's Marie Kondo or not, I took the opportunity, as many families did, to do some spring cleaning. Some of us did spring cleaning of our kitchens, of our storeroom. I did spring cleaning of our lounge, of especially my library, etc., and different parts of it. And one of the things I came across was this. Just wait. I came across an unfinished thousand-piece puzzle. And guess what? As I look at it, we, we tried earlier on, I do not know how many years ago, was it 10, 20 years ago when the kids were younger, right? And if you gave this to me, I have no idea how to make sense of this nonsense. For me, a thousand-piece puzzle, but thankfully, we didn't lose the cover. And as you see from the cover, you can see without me dropping it, right? You see the cover here? Thankfully, it's there because without the cover, I would have no clue where to begin, let alone complete this thousand-piece puzzle. Life is a little bit like that. We are always trying to make sense out of nonsense. How does this piece, why did this experience happen in my life? And so, over the years, pastoral issues, pastoral problems, I remember one parent calling me up and the daughter was going through a hard time sitting for the A-levels and we could multiply that for, o, for PSLE, our primary school exams, major exams, or the O-levels and the A-levels. And she had felt that she, was not, she had not done well in the first one or two papers, I think, and now had a mental block and a fear factor rising in her heart about carrying on. And so 
what to do? Parent comes along and what can I do? Turn to God's word, offer the passages about peace into the child's heart. Important. What was I doing? Was I any better than, than the parent or that student? No. All I was trying to do was to make sense out of nonsense because I went back to God's word. We all have God's word. And in God's word, we hear the glorious gospel about God. And in hearing the glorious gospel about God, about Jesus, the different pieces of our life may start to make sense. One of the most painful deaths to deal with in our family, Mona's side of the family, was one of her nephews, bright young chap, came down with a ferocious brain tumour, and no matter what treatment his parents sought for him, never recovered and passed on. I remember doing that funeral. And after that funeral, I was exhausted. Everyone was exhausted. I sat there after the funeral, really blanked out mentally, emotionally. And then this young boy stood beside me and asked him who, who he was and what he wanted. He was a classmate, a Mona's nephew that had just passed on. And he just wanted to ask, I just wanted to know whether Jonathan, my friend who just passed away, is he truly in heaven? What do you think this boy was asking me at a funeral? He was asking me to make sense out of the nonsense, of the unexpected, irrational things that happen in life. And I can't see purpose, let alone see God in these circumstances. Once you understand that, First Peter is Peter Apostle's attempt to reveal God's will to God's people at that time, to make sense out of the nonsense of their circumstances. Indeed, the whole Bible is that. And one way to understand the whole Bible, all 66 books, is like when you buy a DIY thing, no? a DIY sofa, a DIY table, etc. You put it together and if you ever bought something and put it together, DIY, diagram number one is this, diagram number two is this, diagram number three is this. You don't skip the steps or else you, you won't get a proper table or else you get a shaky, shaky chairs or else you get... Most, all 66 books of the Bible is one component putting it together. The jigsaw puzzle of God, of life, and what it means to live under God or live against God. And whether the destiny of that decision is heaven or hell, eternity with God or eternity without God. So as you listen to this, do you have a spiritual compass to make sense out of the nonsense of what you're experiencing? So an overview of First Peter, the author... Let me get it right. First slide comes on. Here we can. Yeah, we'll go backwards. The author, the scholars debate, can it be Peter the Apostle who wrote this? Why were there doubts or question marks that it could be Peter? Because the language that is here, right, is too good. The grammar, the Greek is written originally in Greek, sounds too good to be true. And yes, he was a fisherman. Yes, that could be possible. But everyone at that time learned a few languages and Greek was one of those languages. So it cannot be that this sounds too good 
It's a little bit like you you read something, oh, this sounds too good. The, the, the language, the theology sounds too good. It hasn't come from one of our pastors. It's come from one of, of the professors. This, after a while, people think that. But Peter himself says this in chapter 5. In chapter 5, he says, With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I've written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. So apostleship, I think most accept it without a doubt that is Peter the apostle. The time frame, could it be previously thought that it was the later persecution under Emperor Domitian? But as you read the letter and understand the extra-biblical evidence, it was most likely the increasing persecution that began with Emperor Nero. And Peter was part of this and he was martyred because uh, as part of this phase of increasing persecution. And so as we read this epistle, we must understand that their situation, it wasn't empire-wide persecution. It was sporadic. What does sporadic mean? America has not pronounced a decree, a law, has not just passed a legislation that all Asian Americans, because of COVID-19, beginning with Chinese Americans from mainland Chinese who settled there, are to be discriminated against and indeed to be jailed. There is no official law or decree. But if you live as an Asian American now, you could be, you could be slandered, you could be beat up at any train station, at any bus stop, en route to school, back from school, at work. What do you call that? We call that sporadic. And just because it's sporadic doesn't mean it's small. When somebody does that to you, in terms of opposition and persecution, when somebody ostracizes you, when somebody targets you because of your race, of course it's race in, in America, against Asian Americans, or even more than that. But if somebody targets us because we believe in Jesus, that's what they were experiencing at that time. So with that context and background, we can go for a possible outline or structure of this epistle. The first chapter begins with, he opens and he can't stop praising God. He can't stop praising God for what God has done in giving us every blessing in Christ. And next week, we're going to begin with a sermon that plunges into that about a study that would study that. And God calls His people in chapter 1, he says, and I read from the NIV, I'm sorry, I brought up the NIV instead of the ESV, but it's still God's word, to God's elect, strangers in the world. It's God's elect dispersed, the diaspora spread out in a hostile world. And so basically Peter is saying, you are God's elect, you are God's strangers, you are God's sojourners in a world that increasingly hates you. And so get used to alien living, Get used to strange living. Get used to sojourners living. You're not permanent citizens of this world. You are PRs, permanent residents, but your citizenship is in heaven. And so that will take us to strange living as God's family. You're now God's family. How do you live as God's family? Against the whole human race that is not God's family. How do you live in chapter 2 as God's chosen temple? Bearing witness to Him. How do you live out marriages as wives, as husbands? How do you live out suffering? And suffering is going to be a huge theme 
running through every chapter. And through all of that, strange living, alien living, sojourners, permanent resident living while looking forward to our true home, you need humility. Humility to submit to God, humility to trust God, humility in all areas of life. And do you see how he ends? He ends with, he begins with, look out to God. But finally, he ends with, look out, watch out for the devil who prowls around as a roaring lion. More of that later in the sermon. And so what is Peter trying to do here? He's trying to remember. He's trying to make sense out of the nonsense of their life. That things were not gelling. We call ourselves believers in Jesus. We believe Jesus is Saviour and Lord of the world. He is King of Kings. He is Lord of Lords. But why are we living like losers in this world? And so, the circumstances they face. When you survey this book over the next eight weeks, in our small groups, come and join us, sign up for this. In our services, come and join us and listen and piece by piece put together the puzzle of life. They were accused of wrongdoing in chapter 2, verse 12. Allow me to read that for, for us. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. So they were accused of what? Accused of doing wrong. Over the past week, have you been accused of doing wrong? When actually you did no wrong in your heart, but the evidence around you make you look like you are one where this wrongdoing came, this evil came. And pockets of Christians all around Asia Minor were now facing this. In chapter 3, verse 9, they were increasingly reviled or insulted verbally. Chapter 3, verse 9, Do not repay evil with evil, or insult with insult, but with blessing. Because of this, you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. Chapter 3, verse 16, it says this. Are you coming with me in your Bibles? If you can, please come along. If not, listen intently. Chapter 3, verse 16, it says this. Keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed. May be ashamed of what? May be ashamed of their slander. And it goes on in chapter 4, you are maligned. Chapter 4, verse 4. And in chapter 4, verse 15 to 16, it speaks about them. And Peter tells them, if you are accused, please don't be accused for the wrong things. Accused for the right things and live up to it. When you pull it all together, the circumstances that we're facing as the early Christians all over Asia Minor, what was it? They were considered increasingly politically incorrect. Religiously incorrect. Why religiously incorrect? In the Roman Empire, the worship that had emperor worship on top of the worship of anything, polytheism, the many gods and the many temples you find in many of the cities that the New Testament letters were written to. 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, Ephesians, they are all centres of religious worship. But to believe in one God and one Saviour and one way of salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ, would make them religiously incorrect. Because how dare you say there is one way to God and one way to heaven? How dare you claim there is absolute truth 
We believe that every different God is right. And because of those two things, they became socially ostracized, more and more socially incorrect. And so, in the studies themselves, we're going to study God's Word and give examples of this, that simply because we believe in Jesus, both in the first century world and now in our 21st century world, all the way from if you are a Christian and you are a student in school, all the way from primary school to secondary school to, to poly to university, you may find yourself politically incorrect in class. Whatever opinion you come up with is socially unacceptable. And Christians from the Western world to us are increasingly identified, targeted, and vilified. We will give you things to read and things, you, things for you to watch. How do you cope when you enter a school and the whole culture is a woke culture? How do you cope? What do you tell your Christian children when the whole culture is kill yourself, kill myself? And the whole suicide thing that harming yourself is the way to feel out of the sadness of life. How do you tell your kids not to do that? That life is precious and life is not to be wasted. That is what this gospel is about. That is what this epistle is about. So if that is what they were facing, what were they experiencing? They were experiencing this. In chapter 1, he says, though you experience grief of many kinds, temporarily, as you face trials, various trials, grief, sorrow, didn't we just have that with the, our John Piper conference? Joy and sorrow. Can it be simultaneous? Is it sequential? Doesn't matter. Here is Peter telling us that we can, we can hold on and fight for joy even though we suffer trials of various kinds temporarily. What else were they experiencing? So I want to ask you, what have you experienced in the past week? Was it grief? Is this grief becoming an overwhelming grief that is paralyzing you? Disarming you from living normally? Or experiencing fear that is rooting you and you are unable to get out of your seat to do anything about it? It could be fear of your peers. It could be fear of the future. It could be fear of your health that right now you have become paranoid with COVID-19. Right now you have become a hypochondriac. That means every possible thing, everything I feel in my body could be a possible deadly illness. For them, experiencing grief and fear, increasingly from opposition and persecution, was causing great confusion. And Peter has to write to them, do not be confused in chapter 4 verse 12. Do not be perplexed when you suffer all these things. And so, what was their coping mechanism? They were very tempted to do this. When you experience grief, when you experience fear, when you experience confusion, what are you most tempted to do? What's your coping mechanism? Their response or their coping mechanism was chapter 2 verse 23. And chapter 2 verse 23 says this. Chapter 2 verse 23. He himself, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin. Sorry, I read verse 24, verse 23 first. When they hurled their insults at him, 
he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. In other words, this verse is hint that in the light of the increasing ostracization they were facing, the persecution, the target being targeted, they had enough and say, let's give it back to them. They are giving it to us in school, at work. I had enough. I'm just going to strike back. And Peter writes and says, don't do that. Don't do that. The second possibility is give up. Previously, when you believe in many gods or you believe in no gods, your life didn't have so many troubles. Your life didn't have so many trials. Your life didn't have, have so much suffering. Indeed, your life was filled with pleasures and passions. And so they were tempted to not go forward with Jesus, but go backwards to their self-rescue, to their passions, to their idolatry. I just want to pause here and ask us, I do not know what circumstances you're facing, and I do not know what those circumstances are eliciting in you, drawing out and triggering you. And if the two main responses is, I had enough. I'm not going to sit here like a doormat. I'm not going to suffer anymore. I'm just going to hit back as hard as I can with my thoughts, with my words, with my deeds. Is that you? Could that be you? Oh, I'm not going to go forward anymore because believing in Jesus has just brought me more suffering than life before Jesus. And Peter writes this for them to make sense out of the nonsense of persecution, of suffering. And what it means to continue to be submissive, which is a huge theme, submissive as citizens to authorities, submissive as slaves to masters, submissive even as wives to ungodly husbands. Submission, not rebellion, should characterize our lives, even though we live in an increasingly hostile world. So how to make sense out of nonsense? Right. He gives us a few things. Firstly, you sort out who you are. And Peter says to them, from God's perspective, from the world's perspective, you are a very different bunch of people. From the world's perspective, you gather together and you do strange things like listen to God's word. You do strange things like you drink the blood and you eat the body of Jesus. And so the early Christians were, were accused of cannibalism. And you do strange things like you don't really flow with the tide. That what we do socially, what we believe in religiously, spiritually, you don't buy into those things. So from the world's perspective, you guys are freakish. You guys are weirdos. You guys are the minority with minority radical views. And your radical views are poisoning everything in our education system, in our workplace. We want you to buy into our worldviews. And Peter has to write to them, from God's view, you are not outcasts. You are not freakish. You are not because you don't belong to this world. You are the chosen elect and the dispersed people of God. And these terms, these titles, chosen, elect, diaspora, are all the 
wonderful terms of privilege given to God's original people, Israel. And God, Peter will tell them through, God will tell them to Peter that you are sojourners and you are exiles in this world. And the song we should sing through this is many different songs, but all the hymn, this world is not my home. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. But that's not an escapist verse. What do you do? And so you got to realize that you are in chapter 2, verse 9 to 10, and that is a direct quotation from Exodus 19. Exodus, didn't we just do this? Yes, we just did this. And the second part of the year, we're going to plunge into chapter 19 to the end of the book. And here's the high point before the law is given, that God had rescued them, redeemed them from slavery to Egypt, made them His people, and now journeyed with them all the way out of the, of the desert. They now arrive at the mountain and God says to them three things. You are my chosen people. You are my royal priesthood. A people belonging to God. What does that mean? We pull it all together. In the eyes of the world, you are scums of this earth. You are scums of this earth and the beliefs you have the behavior you embark on really are making us nauseous. That's how the world thinks of Christians from the first century to the 21st century. You're scums of this earth. But from God's perspective, we may be persecuted, but we are privileged. We may be small in men's eyes, but we are big in God's eyes. We may be shamed by the world, but we are special to God. And so we got to factor in godly suffering. And that will be one of the main messages throughout this epistle. I do not know whether you're truly a Christian, you consider yourself a Christian, you consider yourself a believer, a follower. If you're truly a believer, someone along the line, either through a big meeting gathering like this, when we meet together for services, virtually, online, or on-site, or someone in a small group Bible study, or someone in a personal discipleship with you would have told you very early on in your Christian life that suffering is part of the deal. You've got to factor it in. You've got to factor in gospel suffering. You've got to factor in this gospel paradox that though we are persecuted, we are privileged. Though we are shamed and considered the scum of this earth, we are actually the chosen, we are the holy people of God, and we are here to bear witness to Him, no matter how difficult it is. Then you've got to sort out, to make sense out of nonsense, not just who you are. The bigger person to sort out is to sort out God. And it says in chapter 2, verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of a former ignorance. Remember we said, what were they tempted to do? Give up. <laughs> I'm not going to go forward with Christ. I'm going to go backwards to my idolatry. Go conform to the passions of your former ignorance as idol worshippers, as people who have your own self-rescue. But as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy 
for I am holy. So Peter writes to them and says, you have a choice. As you sort out your identity, as you sort out who you are, as you sort out your conduct, how you want to believe, who you want to believe and how you want to behave, you have to choose whether you want to be a child of God or a child of the world. A child of the world is easy. You can be a dead dog right, and flow with the carcass, flow with the, flow with the river, f- go with the flow. You have given up thinking. You are not living, you are just existing, just following the passions of this world. Or you could have, you could choose to be a child of God and live against popularity against popular worldviews and popular views and values in life. You know how hard it is to swim upstream? It's perhaps the most humanly impossible thing. And so you've got to sort out. So you sort out who God is. And in sorting out who God is, God has now finally revealed Himself fully in Jesus. In chapter after chapter after chapter, Peter is going to hold out Jesus, in chapter 1, he's the living hope. Then in chapter 2, in uh, chapter 1, the end of it, sorry, he's the living word. And it's this living word that gives us permanence in an impermanent world. And then in in chapter 2, he's going to say that Christ is the living stone from which all of us as smaller living stones are now the temple of God. Basically, as you listen as you read, as you understand by the Spirit of God speaking to us, you know what Peter is telling us to do? You're not going to worry your way out of the nonsense of this world. You're not going to work your way out of this world. You're not going to compromise and worm your way out of this world. You're going to worship your way out of it. And the way to worship your way out of a hostile world, out of all the triggers to your unholiness, out of all the triggers to your ungodliness, is you've got to put Jesus as living hope, as living word, as living stone. He has to be front and centre of your life. That's what it means. Whatever life throws at us, we choose Jesus. Whatever life. And so I do not know, did, did you, do you listen every week to the announcements that we make for our prayers and our participation, for our prayers, for our particip- participation? And we just said, the announcements that we make in churches as Christians are not about our activity. Activity is not from God and not about God. It's about ministry. The serving of God by serving people with His Word. And every week we have three to four hundred of us teaching God's Word to our children, to our youth, to our, to our adults across the board. Did you hear our two announcements about discovering Christianity? that you could have family or friends who can't make sense out of the nonsense of life, and whatever COVID-19 hasn't propelled or catapulted into your face, what is it COVID-19 has propelled or catapulted into your consciousness every day? Fear. The fear of getting infected. We thought we would get the vaccination and it might work, but ever so often we hear of a variant. And does this... Is this vaccination good for all the variants? And now they think there's a a more dangerous one, a more resilient one, a more infectious one, a more deadly one called Delta and Delta Plus. What else might come? COVID-19 as a pandemic has catapulted 
fear as the main emotion of our generation and fear of death as the main worry of life and everything thrown in between. Discovering Christianity just for newcomers, when we invite you to join our discipleship groups, we don't meet every week out of routine. We meet every week and more often through the week to inspire, to encourage each other, to love and good deeds because when we read God's Word, when we hear the Gospel, Jesus is catapulted into our consciences. consciences. He's catapulted into our hearts, into our relationships, into our homes, into our marriages that we'll read about in chapter 3, into our workplaces in chapter 2, into every avenue and arena of life. And that's why you got to listen. It's not the activities we embark on, the ministries that you can take part in. And so, what is this? He says in chapter 2, verse 11, 12, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul, and keep your conduct among the gentles, Gentiles honourable, so that they speak, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. When you listen to the Apostle Peter with some care, and when we listen to the Apostle Peter speak God's word to us, write God's word to us, proclaim God's word to us, he's saying, what is live such good lives? Even though the world treats us as different, as scums, to be ostracized, to be laughed at, to be avoided, we are to live such good lives. And it's not just mere inner morality, purity. We are called to that. Don't go back to your passions. Don't go back to your sexual adulteries. Don't go back to all the things that have to do with your own self. Come to Jesus. And he says, live such good lives. He's asking them to do public good. And as you read and the extra biblical evidence, the Christians who were richer started to become benefactors. They gave money in modern-day terms to building things that bless their, their towns, their villages. It says, who built this fountain? Who, 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 who brought water to this, this village? Oh, a, a group of believers did that. And still over 2,000 years of church history and presently, we are still building the gospel as we go to third world countries. Who built that school? Who built that bridge? Who brought, who piped in water so that we don't no longer bathe in the same river and drink from the same river? Christians have been at the forefront of those things again and again. The public good and benefaction. So Peter is saying, that you live such good lives with inner purity and visible public good. Yet, altogether, the best way to stop people bad-mouthing Christ and bad-mouthing His people is godly living and good living by us. And so what does that mean for us? Here in our church, in ARPC, there in any Christian gathering, very important, very important that we do what? In our new series of Bible studies, in our notes, there's an expanded version now of application stroke obedience. God is not to be applied, God is to be obeyed. So we don't just want to read passage after passage with no implications for our life. You read this passage about what it means to have living hope, 
What does it mean for you? You read this passage about the living word as God's family. What does that mean for your family from Monday to Sunday? And in those questions, we ask you to think about it and to spur each other on through the week. That's really encouraging, don't you think? Work on it and then memorize that verse and allow God's word to bring about the transformation of your mind and your heart. And I'm still writing it up. What does this discipleship mean for us as men day to day, week to week in our groups? What does this discipleship mean for us as women? Even our small groups, what we call DGs, discipleship groups, we can pair you up as, as uh, triplets and get you into groups, triplets or together, two people, and just journey as spiritual buddies, journeying together. So you keep each other growing, blossoming, accountable as men for God, as women for God. We'll write in a section on family discipleship so that this is not just sporadic once or twice a year when we address men's issues or women's issues or family issues. We must have those camps. We must have those retreats. But it must be ongoing. And that's why the tweaking of the material to be more obedience-heavy, not just observing, not just interpreting, but living out the gospel. The best way to stop the bad mounting of Christ is godly living from day to day. And flowing out of that, public good works out there. Public good works out there. Last but not least, Peter is going to tell us that we're going to sort out God versus Satan. And he's going to tell us that Satan was, works best on pride and God works best on humility. Listen to him as the epistle ends. Chapter 5, verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time God may exalt you, casting all your anxieties, because here is the other way out of the nonsense of life, is to worry yourself to death. Anxieties from morning to night, casting all your anxieties as the world ostracizes you, as the world slanders you, accuses you, you cast all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. And what else does He tell them to do? Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Got the message? God, Satan works best on our pride. And our pride is, I don't need God. I don't need Jesus and the cross. I don't need the Holy Spirit to work myself to heaven. I'm not interested in heaven in the first place. I can't even sort out things on, on earth. Satan will get you so bogged down with grief, with worries, with fears. He will try to squeeze God out of your heart by fears, griefs, sorrow, anxieties. And God works best on humility. Remember the lesson from Exodus? You have to choose between same lessons from Old to New Testament. Thus says my circumstances, or thus says the Lord Jesus. Because it's now the Lord Jesus leading us to the living hope, to inheritance that can never spoil, fade or perish, kept in heaven for us by the power of God and us by faith in God we will arrive to partake of that. So how does that work out? 
That works out too. Are you going to listen to this book, listen to God's word, and sort out the three things? Sort out who you are, your true identity, sort out who God is, and when you sort out who God is, let's make it simple, only two things remember, you sort out who Jesus is. And please don't sort out who Jesus is to others. Jesus said, who, who do you say I am? He asked Peter, it's not who do people say I am. He started with that. He finally asked Peter, but who do you say I am? It's down to a personal response. So sort out who God is by sorting out who Jesus is to you personally. And finally, the epistle ends with, you watch out for Satan who prowls around like a roaring lion. You got to sort out who he is. God is promising you sense out of nonsense. The sense is the whole Bible. The sense is Jesus and the cross. The sense is Jesus has come to die for us, rise for us, now intercedes for us. And he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. That is the sense. Satan will try to snuff it out. He will try to scare the daylights out of you, make you so sorrowful, you can't see the joy and the victory in Jesus. So a close friend, going through a troubled marriage, and trouble because uh, he now has to raise his three kids by himself. And every time the, the three kids go over, to the wife's place was now moved out. She, who's no evidence that she's a believer, screams at them, fall other words at them. Every time they come back to him, he has immediately to draw them together to do what? Just to detox their mind from all that scolding and the four letter words with the word of God. And then he said, you know, he tries, he tries no matter how hard to still read the Bible, pray with them, turn them to Jesus. And every time they come back from the mother's place, he has to tell them, because they are young kids, he's trying to tell them, you know, sometimes when we adults as parents, when things go wrong, we try to find a way out. We might go and find a way out through drink. We'll find a way out by choosing the wrong things, running to the wrong things, the wrong people. Instead of running, daddy and mommy running back to each other and running back to God, we run to the wrong persons. He explained that to his kids. And his young son asked him, Daddy, have you done that? Have you run to the arms of another woman? That's what he was asking in not so many words. And my friend said, he could look his young boy in the eye. No, Daddy hasn't. And no matter how much pain he suffers as a father, and he's suffering a lot of pain, he says, I just want to hold out Jesus to them. And at that point, he cries and cries and cries in that conversation with me. So that in the future, when they are facing tough relationships, I want them to be able to look back and say, Daddy never gave up. No, Mommy gave up. You think this is humanly possible? No, friends, it's from grace to grace, God's grace to us again and again. And so you have to sort things out. And that's how we're going to end with a song that says, turn your eyes to Jesus. 
Jesus is front and center. And so I pray that you come along and listen to this epistle over eight weeks in our small groups and in our services. And you'll be blessed, blessed as you turn to Jesus and you make sense out of nonsense. Before we pray, I want to leave you with two questions for you to be working out as part of your personal walk and discipleship with God. You can do this personally with a spiritual buddy. You could do this if you're a married couple, dating couple. You could do this as part of family, discipleship. And the two questions are, firstly, what are some wrong or mistaken ways you have tried and still trying to make sense out of the nonsense of life, the hard things of life? Secondly, how can you now rightly worship your way out of the nonsense of life, the things which are inexplicable? How can you personally, how can you as a couple, how can you as a family, how can you as a discipleship group worship your way instead of going back to your own efforts, instead of apostatizing, Instead of retaliating, how can you look to Jesus? Two questions to work through. Immediately after the service, you can pray together after my closing prayer. And through the week, keep this as the main challenge in your life. Let's go to God in prayer. You have spoken to us in the book of Exodus. And you have assured us and declared to us again and again, that you are God who hears the cries of your people. You not just hear, but because you are God who made your promises to Abraham. You are the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. You will bring an end to our life and slave to Satan, and slave to sin, and enslaved to the fear of death. You have done that through Jesus, our Saviour and our Lord. And now as we have Open up by your grace the epistle of First Peter, of how he wrote to the early Christians, why he wrote to the early Christians, who are trying to make sense out of their increasing persecution and opposition, and how they were trying to make sense out of their growing grief and fears and anxieties and confusion, and how they were tempted to go back to their old life of self-rescue of idolatries, or simply to just retaliate. We pray, Heavenly Father, that by your grace, by your word, by your Holy Spirit, you will keep us looking to Jesus. And in turning to Jesus, in lifting our eyes to Jesus, we will see his glory, overcoming the shame and the suffering of our life. As we turn our eyes to Jesus, we will see the price compared to what we may have lost in life and may still be losing. And so we pray that by your Spirit, by your grace, by your word, we will adore you, behold you and worship you even more through suffering while we wait and journey to our true home. In your mighty name we pray. Amen. Thank you all of you for joining us in our services. If you need spiritual help in any way, 
please contact us at the various platforms and we'll respond to you as best as we can. We may not be here to provide you all the answers, but we are always here to point you to God and to Jesus. And in pointing you to God and Jesus, you will have the answers. Till we meet you again, the Lord bless you and keep you. Amen.